Sketches from Scripture presents After God's Own Heart, a teaching series from the book of Samuel. At the end of the book of Judges, the author writes, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Israel was a nation, but not a kingdom. The spiritual leaders were corrupt and aloof, and the nation wandered far from God. Thanks to the desperate prayer of a woman named Hannah, her son, the prophet Samuel, became the leader, priest, and judge of Israel, and God called him to anoint a king, one who believed, acted, and ruled after God's own heart. Will a king unify an adulterous nation and bring them back to the Lord? This is the story of the book of Samuel. Many of these episodes begin with a review, and in the podcast app, it's really easy to fast forward past those, and I want to caution against doing that. I know it sounds repetitious. I know it's very repetitive to keep going over this. That's on purpose because when you repeat things, when you hear things the same over and over, you are able to remember them better. And so one of my goals with this series is not just that you hear the story and learn the content, but that you would remember it. And that later on, when you are reminded through something going on in your life, or maybe someone asks you a, a spiritual question of some kind, maybe something that you've learned as part of the series will pop into your mind and you'll remember, oh yeah, I remember this had something to do with David and Goliath, or oh yeah, this was something about, you know, um, Samuel's mother praying, where was that, you know? And so if you are familiar with the book of Samuel, if you're familiar, sort of the order of events, then you can narrow it down to a few chapters uh, in the story when you go looking for it. And you're not able to do that if you can't sort of summarize the story. So that's one reason I continue to do these reviews and, and kind of repetitive in these reviews is because I want you to remember it. I want it to be repetitive. I want you to be able to repeat it yourself. So um, right at the beginning of the book of Samuel, the first thing that happens is we, uh, through some narrative trickery, are tricked into meeting uh, a woman named Hannah. Through all of her circumstances that are described um, she is sort of an unloved uh, second wife, or she's loved, but she's a, a, a second wife. She uh, is barren. She's unable to bear children, and she's from a small family from some unheard of people. And so by all um, rubrics of measurement of the time, she would be a dishonor a dishonored person. She's a woman. She's barren. She's from a nothing place, from an unheard of family. And yet her name, Hannah, means favored one. And so right away, right out of the gate, the book of Samuel is letting us know, uh, don't see with your eyes, a thing that we will um, come to touch on in later chapters. So Hannah has this prayer. She prays to the Lord, give me a son and I'll give him to you. He does and she does. Samuel's dedicated to the work of the Lord and it becomes Israel's first prophet serving under the priest at that time. His name is Eli and he has two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Hophni and Phinehas are evil and Eli is not much better. And Hophni and Phinehas take the ark into battle. They lose in a battle to the Philistines. This is happening in chapter four. And uh, Hophni and Phinehas die in battle. The Philistines capture the ark. When Eli hears about it, he falls over, uh, breaks his neck, and because of his massive weight, breaks his neck and dies. 
So Eli, Hophni, and Phineas all die, and the Ark is taken from Shiloh, where it had been for 360-something years. Now it's in the hands of the Philistines. This makes Samuel judge and priest uh, over Israel now that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Uh, the Philistines have some bad experiences with the Ark and some gross experiences with the Ark. And so they get rid of it, send it back into Israel, and it lands in Eliezer's house in kiriath Jerem, where it remains up to this point in our story. And it stays there for a total of 20 years. Uh, during this time, Israel asks for a king and thereby rejecting God as king, rejecting Samuel as their judge given to them by God. But God says to Samuel, let them have one anyway. So God anoints Saul as king uh, through Samuel. Samuel does the actual oil anointing of Saul as king. And at first, to the readers, he appears to be the model king of Israel. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome. Once again, the narrative is showing us, be careful what you see with your eyes. And right away, we see foreshadowing that he's going to have lots of weaknesses and a lack of faith. So Samuel gives a farewell warning, seeing as he's been fired. So Samuel retires in chapter 12. Saul commits several public sins, after which Samuel informs him that he's no longer the Lord's anointed. Saul does make some rash decisions and takes some matters into his own hands, uh, takes on the responsibility of the priest, even though he's not allowed to do that. And so Samuel informs him he's no longer the Lord's anointed, that there is someone else. And Samuel may be saying this as a matter of faith, as he's not yet met who the Lord now has anointed as king. So in the next chapter, Samuel goes to Bethlehem at the direction of the Lord, to the family of Jesse. And there he sees David's older brother, sees that he is strong and thinks this surely is the Lord's anointed, but the Lord explicitly says to him sort of the theme of the entire book of Samuel, which is, you know, don't look with your eyes. Don't look on the outside. Man sees with the eyes. God sees with the heart. And so this sets up the whole theme of the book of Samuel for us that we can apply today, this idea of not seeing with the eyes, but seeing with the heart through the eyes, as Rabbi Zacharias has said many times. And so we want to see with our heart through the eyes. We want to see people as God sees them. We want to see the world as God sees it. We want to see justice and injustice as God sees it. We want to see people as made in his image as God sees them. We want to see people who are um, everyone. Um, God's not willing that any should perish. He wants to save everyone. And we should see people in that same kind of way. That should be how we see things with the heart, through the eyes. And so it's at this point that David shows up and the Lord says, this is the one. And so um, Samuel anoints David as king at the direction of the Lord in the privacy of the family home. Meanwhile, the Lord sends a tormenting spirit to Saul. Saul is still acting king, even though uh, in God's eyes, he's no longer king. In the eyes of the nation, he is still the king in the eyes of the people, the people who see with their eyes and not with their heart. So David begins uh, serving as a musician for Saul. Uh, he's brought in to play the lyre, play the harp as a way of soothing the, the uh, Saul during these times of depressive rage. And for this reason, David is also made an armor bearer, probably just so that he will be uh, always close to Saul. 
Chapter 17, David defeats the giant Goliath, and the Lord delivers Israel from the Philistines as a result. It's a great military victory that is uh, done at the hands of David. And it may be that this chapter, the events of this chapter actually happened before some of the events of chapter 16, but the author gives us the events of chapter 16 first because it's the spiritual um, elevation of David, whereas chapter 17 is sort of the military elevation of David. And so the author of the book of Samuel wants us to know it's the spiritual things that matter first, and then uh, the other logistical things of the world. It's not that they don't matter. It's just that they don't matter first. So uh, Saul becomes jealous of David at this point and tries to kill him a number of times. Jonathan helps David escape from Saul. David and his men, the men that uh, have sworn loyalty to him, they go on the run. Saul chases him uh, through uh, Doeg, the Edomite, kills all the priests of Israel and their families and their children and their livestock, except for one son who escapes and joins David. And he's got the ephod with him, which sort of would make him uh, the de facto priest. He's got the, the ephod of the priest. Uh, David has a chance to kill Saul, but doesn't. We looked at this last night in the caves of En Gedi, and the feud subsides. Uh, but only briefly, as we'll see in the new material that we're looking at tonight. So tonight, we're going to be uh, going into 1 Samuel chapter 25, and we're going to continue in sort of a skimming fashion to get through uh, a large part of this material. So let's go ahead and uh, get over to 1 Samuel chapter 25 and take a look at it. So here in 1 Samuel 25, we have uh, this series of circumstances here between uh, David and a man named uh, Nabal and his wife, Abigail. And uh, so we begin right here in, in verse one of chapter 25, Samuel died and all Israel assembled to mourn for him and they buried him by his home in Ramah. David then went down to the wilderness of Paran. So what we're seeing here is um, Samuel, who is David's champion, uh, the, the, the person who says, no, no, David is the one from the Lord. Samuel is now gone. And it's interesting because we're not even done with the first half of the book of Samuel and Samuel now has died and he is no longer going to be part of the story, at least uh, the way that he has been, at least as a alive person. We'll see um, something else a little later tonight where he, he reappears. And yet all of this, even on into 2 Samuel, is still called the book of Samuel. And why is that? Well, it shouldn't be called the book of David. That would be a good name for the book. Um, I think it's called the book of Samuel because he is the, the prophet and judge that begins the story. He's the one that anoints both Saul and David. And sort of uh, Samuel sort of covers the legacy of both of these kings. Uh, if it were up to me, I'd call it the book of Hannah because the whole thing begins with her prayer, her faithfulness, even though she seemed unfavored by the world uh, through her name. We know that she was a favored one by the Lord, and he showed it by granting her prayer and giving her Samuel. So uh, all of this really goes back to this uh, faithful woman and her faithful prayer and the faithful God that showed honor to her. So we're here. We've got the story of David and Nabal and uh, Nabal's wife, Abigail. And um, uh, um Nabal is a cruel and stupid man, and he intends to fight against uh, David's men. And uh, David wants 
to, to take his man and go and kill Nabal. But uh, Abigail, seeing that there was going to be a great calamity, she comes out and she says, uh, look, my husband's stupid. And so don't, uh, she gives him these gifts and everything here in verse 18, as you can see. And she says, uh, you know, Nabal means stupid. That's what his name means. And it's a fitting name. He's a stupid guy. And so don't take out his stupidity on the rest of us. And so um, when she uh, gives this gift to him, David's heart is turned. And so he says uh, here in verse 32, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who sent you to meet me today. May your discernment be blessed. May you be blessed. And today you kept me from participating in bloodshed and avenging myself by my own hand. And so here we see a time when David was about to take matters into his own hand and some wise counsel comes to him in the form of this woman, Abigail, and she stops it. And David has the humility. Again, we talked last night about David's humility in these circumstances. He has the humility to recognize that he was acting rashly, something Saul was never able to recognize. And so he sort of pronounces a curse on Nabal. And what we see later is uh, Nabal, um, it says, in the morning when Nabal sobered up, he had been drunk. His wife told him about these events. His heart died and he became a stone. About 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal dead. So he has some sort of stroke or uh, something like that heart attack. And 10 days later, he is dead. And so David, rather than taking matter into his own hands, lets the Lord take revenge on him. And so that's what we see here. So this honorable woman, Abigail, um, David ends up sending for her to be a wife. And so Abigail becomes David's wife. And so we go on to chapter 26. And once again, we see that David has an opportunity to spare Saul, uh, to kill Saul, but instead spares him. This is the same thing that we saw in uh, the, the, some of the stories last night. He's an, another opportunity to kill Saul, but he doesn't. Instead of uh, cutting a corner off of his robe, he goes down and he steals his water jug. And uh, he sort of shows that as proof as, hey, I snuck into your camp. I easily could have killed you. And yet I didn't. And so that should mean something. And once again, we see the feud uh, relented for uh, a short time. Um, so once again, Saul relents. But again, it's only brief. So David, knowing Saul would come after him again eventually and try to kill him. I'm trying to get my Bible loaded back up for you here. Uh, David, knowing Saul would try to come after him again, he goes to hide among the Philistines in Gath. Saul decides not to start war or uh, maybe he's just afraid of the Philistines. And so he kind of lets it go. And Saul tries to find David, trying to find where he is rather than just going around pillaging things, looking for him. David's living in this uh, town called Ziklag, which is um, a pretty cool name for a town, Ziklag. Kind of wonder what their high school mascot would be. Um, Anyway, so he's living in uh, Ziklag, Akshish, who's this um, one of the uh, Philistines. He's sort of given him this town. And he trusts David because he thinks uh, David is going out and warring against his own people because David, he'll go out and war against some of the non-Philistine, non-Jewish people around like the Amalekites who have been constant enemies of um, the Israelites and people that um, uh, Saul was supposed to have, have gotten rid of already. So David's going around doing the job Saul was supposed to have done. But when he comes back, he tells um, 
actually where he's been. Oh, I've been in the Southland of uh, this and that people. And by this, actually thinks that he is warring against his own Israelite people. So he thinks, okay, well, this guy stinks to the Israelites. So uh, he's no, no threat to me. He's got no, there's no love loss between him and the actual Israelites. So Saul wanting to find um, David amongst the Philistines decides to consult a medium. And uh, he goes to Endor where there's this old woman there and he goes, he changes his clothes. So he's not recognized as the king goes to consult the medium. What he wants the medium to do is to bring Saul, uh, bring Samuel back from the dead. And so that's what he does. Samuel comes back in the form of a spirit and the medium woman is terrified when she realizes that the person with her is Saul. And she asks, you know, oh, what if, why did you deceive me? And he says, don't be afraid. Tell me what you see. Uh, she's worried about being deceived because Saul has declared mediums to be evil, which they would be, of course, under uh, God's law. But here Saul is taking, once again, taking matters into his own hands. And Samuel comes up and says, why are you bothering me while I am dead? Why don't you let me sleep? Um, why are you consulting me? If the Lord is not giving you an answer, why do you think I would tell you anything? I'm on the Lord's side, not yours. And so it's not a really great time that he has here. And um, he ends up being um, consoled by this medium. And um, he finds that uh, as part of this, that his attempts to kill David will just result in his own death and the death of his sons because he didn't destroy the Amalekites, which he should have done. So in the next chapter here, then the Philistines attack Israel and Saul, seeing he is defeated, ends up killing himself. Rather than letting a Philistine uh, kill him, he falls on his own sword. And uh, when David learns that Saul has been killed, he mourns. He mourns for Saul. He doesn't cheer. He doesn't rejoice. He mourns. And when the messenger comes to say that he has killed Saul, uh, it, he comes saying that it's a, a message of victory. But David shuns him for not respecting uh, the Lord's anointed. And turns out this man who is a uh, Amalekite um, is the one that helped to uh, Saul falls on his own sword, but it doesn't kill him right away. And so this messenger says, oh, I, I actually finished him off. He was dying and I finished him off. And it's this message of victory. And David says, "You, why weren't you afraid to hurt the Lord's anointed? Like, that's not your responsibility. You shouldn't do that. You should never lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And so he kills the Amalekite there. And then chapter 30, we see David uh, defeating the Amalekites. Uh, and then um, Saul, and not only Saul dies during this battle, but Saul's sons die. And remember, one of Saul's sons is Jonathan, David's best friend. And uh, they shared a great love together, close, close friends. And so at the death of Jonathan, uh, David composes a song for his, um, for his lost friend. And, um, so we see this now we're into book, the book of second Samuel chapter one, uh, with the announcement of, um, Saul's death. And so in second Samuel chapter two, we finally get what we've been waiting on since chapter 16 something that's been going on for, for months, for years, David now actually becoming the king and he becomes 
notice this chapter heading says David, king of Judah. So we're waiting for David to become king of Israel. This is king of Judah. So why is that? Well, Abner, Saul's right-hand man, declares Ishbosheth. this is one of Saul's sons who's still living, to be king of Israel. And so uh, Abner, and uh, who's sort of from the house of Saul, and Joab, who's from the house of David, there's this lot of politics and a lot of killing, and uh, would make a great sort of uh, action political thriller, you know, period piece, uh, something like, um, you know, Gladiator or Ben Hur or something like that. There's uh, all this politics and killing later, and Ishbosheth is dead, and Abner is dead, and finally David is king of all of Israel. So at first he's only king of Judah. The house of Judah goes with him, but the rest doesn't. Later, the rest of Israel goes along. So this is very important because we know later in Jewish history, you're going to have this divide between the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And we know it's the kingdom of Judah that is going to persist. I mean, that's why we call them the Jews, because they are from Judah and they are Judean. And we think about uh, Jerusalem is in Judea. And um, so the Assyrians are going to come in. They're going to take away most of northern Israel. Later, the Babylonians are going to come in and take away uh, Judah. And so we're going to have ongoing all before that sort of this civil war between the north and the south. And it, in, in the case of Israel, it's the southern kingdom of Judah and it's the northern kingdom of Israel. And by and large, uh, you have uh, good and evil people in both places. And it's just really messy. But I want you to see right here in the second king, the second king over the nation of Israel, it's already fraught with civil war. It's already fraught with uh, bloodshed. It's already uh, fraught with with uh, war against neighboring nations. And uh, everything that Moses predicted about having a king back in Deuteronomy is coming true. Everything that Samuel predicted in chapter 8 about having a king, and it again repeats in chapter 12 uh, his, during his retirement speech, his retirement sermon uh, about having a king, that's all coming true. And so the Lord has anointed David and, and loves David and is with David. But at the same time, it's all these costs that come from the nation of Israel taking matters into their own hands, requesting things the Lord necessarily did not want to give them in the beginning. And so uh, though God makes some concessions, uh, it all comes with a cost. And so this is a lesson for us in that we should be careful what we ask God for in prayer because he just might give it to us and we might suffer the consequences of it. So um, in the next few chapters, what we'll see is David is finally king of all Israel. The kingdom is divided in its heart, and we'll see that as the whole Old Testament progresses. David runs the Jebusites out of a little nothing of a town called Jerusalem and decides to make that his home. He defeats the Philistines in battle one last time, and he secures his rightful place in every way as the leader of Israel, as sort of the, the, the anointed spiritual leader, as the war leader, as the governmental leader. And so uh, that prepares us for what we're going to look at tomorrow night, something that we've been waiting for, for a long time now. And that is the return of the ark to the heart of Israel. And so this is in very broad strokes. We started with our review right at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we end here in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And there's a few lessons to learn along the way, and there's a few things to look at, but mostly what I want to say is look at how colorful this story is. Look at all of the 
um, the little short stories, the little episodes that are going in all along the way. Look at um, the love stories that are here, not just the romantic love stories between, say, David and Michael or David and Abigail, but look also at uh, the stories of love between uh, friends like um, David and Jonathan, or later, as we'll see with David and Nathan, the prophet, these uh, special relationships that are formed that are important, that tell us something about the world that we live in. And as we go through each of these stories, we should remember the tools of Discovery Bible Study. We should ask ourselves, what does this story tell us about God? And what does this story tell us about human nature? And then how am I going to put this passage into practice? Sometimes uh, application can be difficult when we're looking at stories that are primarily a sort of war and historical accounting and sort of um, in, in the film terms, what we might call shoe leather, getting from A to B, right? So you have the detective who is, you know, at one scene and he's got to go back to the precinct or he's got to go to the next scene and you'll have these scenes of him driving around or walking the streets and you actually have, you know, a shot of his shoes walking on the sidewalk and, and back in the old, you know, the 70s TV shows or the 40s movies, these kinds of things. And so that's what we mean by shoe leather. You got these sort of shoe leather scenes getting from one place to another. And yet all scripture is given to us. That's uh, It's all good for teaching. It's all good for uh, instruction. It's all good to learn from. So even in these stories that seem like just history, that seem like just shoe leather, we should look at them and we should ask, well, in this story, what are we learning about God? What are we learning about human nature? And then that'll help us make application. Because if we see that God is or is not present in the story, that might tell us something eternal about the characteristic of God that we can take and apply to every situation. And if we see, even if God's not really part of what's going on because uh, such a Saul with uh, the medium, because the, the characters are ignoring God or ignoring what God wants, we might see that um, it's telling us a lot about human nature and uh, a lot about human nature without God. Or if it's a story that God is very present and God is anointing things and God is commanding things and the characters are being obedient, then it might tell us something about um, human nature when we are obeying God or, or, or the nature of discipleship, the nature of following God, of obeying God and uh, being transformed to, to be more and more godly, to return to that, uh, that original created in the image of God nature that we once had as uh, as uh, humankind. So we ask, what does this say about God? What can we learn about God? What eternal characteristic can we learn about God in this passage? What eternal characteristic of human nature can we learn in this passage? At that point, once we've talked about these characteristics, then we might be able to say, okay, based on that, how can we put this passage into practice? There's sort of three ways you can look at putting a passage into practice. One is if you're uh, reading this with someone who is not a believer and and uh, has not committed their life to Christ, they're just maybe curious or interested, and you thought maybe starting with a fun story like the book of Samuel might be a little easier way to ease them into Scripture. Maybe they're reading this and uh, they say, okay, well, I see, you know, it says this about God. I don't know if I believe that or not, but here's what it says. Here's what it says about people. I'm not sure that that's true or not, but that's what the that's what it says, at least, about people. What you might say is, well, if that were true, if it were true about God, if there is a God and this is true about him, and, and if this is true about human nature, then what might you have to change about your life in order to have it line up with these things that we're saying are true? And so uh, that's a way when you're 
reading the Bible with someone who maybe isn't a believer yet, you can just ask, if you believe these things were true, what might you have to change? And they'll come up with a suggestion. At that point, you can say, well, why don't you do that this week? Why don't you try that this week in some kind of you know measurable way? And let's see how that goes and come back the next week and, and, and tell me about it. And in a lot of ways, people think, well, you know, you have to believe scripture to obey it. But uh, scripture really kind of teaches the opposite thing, that if you will obey scripture, you'll believe it. You'll, if you obey it, you'll see the power in it. I've seen this firsthand in studying with people, people who are skeptics who came and read. And suddenly, as they obeyed some of the things that they were reading, they would come back the next week and they would say, OK, what's in this thing? What's happening here? Because there's something here that I want to know something uh, more about. Um when you're reading with believers, you can just simply ask, okay, how are you going to put this passage into practice? This language is taken right from the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, those who hear my words and put them into practice are like those who built a house on bedrock, down, dug down to the stone and built their house on something solid, on a good foundation. It's the people who build their house on sand. They're people who hear the words, but they don't put them into practice. Jesus is painting the picture here of, of these two identical buildings. In today's language, we might say he's talking about two identical looking Christians from the outside. If you look with your eyes, okay, if you look with your eyes, Saul and David, they don't necessarily look that much different. In fact, Saul looks maybe better than David. He's tall, he's strong, he's handsome, he's a warrior. David's a little kid, you know. And so Jesus, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, paints this picture of these two houses. They look the same. They go to church every Sunday. They're serving on meals on wheels. They're in Sunday school. They're posting Jesus memes on their Facebook and all this kind of other stuff. But one is actually putting the words into practice. The other is not putting the words into practice. And when the storm comes, and as we look at current events, as we look at news, as we look at Twitter and Facebook and see everything going on in the world, there are some storms that are brewing, some of some of which are very active and, and roiling right now. And so when the storm comes, the ones who are not putting the words into practice, their house is going to fall with a great crash. Jesus is very violently explicit about this as how he ends his sermon. It's going to fall with a great crash. But before that, he tells us that those who build their house on the stone, which is putting the words into practice, obedience, obedience to the word of God is the foundation here that Jesus is talking about. It's those people who will be able to withstand the floods, the storms, the weather of life. So when you ask, what's it say about God? What's it say about people? The next thing is to say, okay, well, how are you going to put this passage into practice? For those who are disciples, for those who are following Jesus, and remember, being a disciple means you're trusting and following Jesus. Making disciples means you're helping other people trust and follow Jesus. And if you're not making disciples, you're not fully a disciple yet because disciples are commanded to make other disciples. So to be a disciple making disciple, you're trusting and following Jesus and you're helping someone else trust and follow Jesus. And so for someone who is a disciple, when you come to the text, you can ask, what's this say about God? You can ask, what's it say about human nature? You can even ask, what does it say about disciples? What does it say about people who are trying to trust and follow Jesus more deeply. And when you get to that obedience question, you can say, how am I going to put this passage into practice? Or you can ask it like this. The Holy Spirit is trying to reveal something to me in this passage. There's something in one of these stories, or there's something in something that we read tonight that really sort of dug a claw into me. And I can't stop thinking about it. When we read it, something inside me leapt. You know, that's, that's revelation that's coming to you from the Holy Spirit, something that is calling out to be transformed in you. And remember, the bridge between revelation and transformation is obedience. 
So the question you ask is, what's the Holy Spirit revealed to you in this passage and how will you obey it in your life this week? So that's three different ways to ask the obedience question. If you believe this were true, what would you have to change? How are you going to put this passage into practice? Or what's the Holy Spirit revealing to you and how are you going to obey it in your life this week? You see how each one gets sort of deeper and more explicit based on the level of commitment the person has to Christ. And Discovery Bible Study doesn't just end with our own understanding and our own application of the passage, but it implores us, it begs us to share it with someone else. Maybe an unbelieving person needs to be encouraged through truth, or perhaps a believer needs to be admonished or even warned, rebuked even with the truth. Uh, we say, uh, he is, we are, I will, you can. These are the eight words that'll help you remember the text questions of Discovery Bible Study. What's it say about God? Well, he is X, Y, Z. What's it say about people? What we are. This is what it says about us. Uh, how are you going to put this passage into practice? Well, I will, not, well, you ought to, but I will, I will do this thing this week, this very specific thing. Uh, who do you know that needs to hear this? Well, you can. We say you can because we want to encourage other people as often as possible towards something higher. Jesus talks about uh, being born again in John chapter three. And if you've never heard that before, you, you, you imagine what that would sound like to you. You need to uh, go through a change that's as radical as going from inside the womb to outside the womb. You need to go through uh, something as radical as a birth a second time, not just a second time, but a higher version of it. And in the same way that you were born physically, you need to be born spiritually. You need to be reborn. You need to be born into a new place. And so um, uh, whenever we're trying to encourage someone, we're trying to bring them to that newer, higher, better place with uh, using the word of God and by modeling our obedience as well. So we've been through a lot of text tonight. We've really summarized from 1 Samuel chapter 1 all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 5. And we've talked about how you can take the text that you read with someone else and apply it. But you're not going to have any transformation if you don't obey. You're not going to have any evangelism. You're not going to have any uh, disciple making if you don't read scripture with someone else. So I would really implore you over the next couple of days, find a way on the phone, FaceTime, safely socially distanced um, at an outdoor coffee shop or a restaurant that's recently opened. Find someone to read the Bible out loud with. It can be a fellow Christian for now. It's the low-hanging fruit. We need to disciple each other. But find a way to disciple someone. Find a way to continue in your discipleship journey by reading scripture out loud with someone else. And when you're selecting the person that you're going to when you're selecting the person that you're going to read with, I really want to encourage you to take the big lesson that we're learning from the book of Samuel, which is don't look with your eyes, but look with your heart through the eyes. Look with the heart that God gave you. Look with the heart that Christ has redeemed in you and look at others as created in the image of God and wanting to be fully redeemed by the God who made them. That's how God sees them. And if that's how we see them, then people will be encouraged and they will be loved, and um, God willing, they will be saved. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.